right. Good, 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 good. How's everybody doing? Doing good. How about you guys in live stream land? Everybody doing good? Give a shout. All right, good. We can hear you loud and clear. Uh, fantastic. Well, good. We are, uh, this morning, we're going to jump right into our study, which is a, um, a brand new study that we started uh, last week. And so this morning, we're continuing that. We'll see how long this goes. Um, it's entitled Fake News. Fake News. Fake News. We're going to be talking about some, some ideas, some beliefs, um, some common thinking, right? Um, beliefs that are widely held, at least. Um, and discussing them, kind of breaking them down and and just really asking ourselves, okay, this belief, this idea is out there. It's fairly widely held. Um, but is it really true, right? And, of course, you can tell by the title that we've given this series that um, we're going to be taking on commonly held ideas that, in fact, I'm going to make the case, uh, at least, that they're, that they're not true. We're going to talk about some groupthink um, that's actually probably more like uh, group self-sabotage. Um, and most of the ideas that we'll talk about are within the church, but not exclusively so. Um, we're going to talk about just, you know, the goal here is to talk about ideas that are out there, whether they are within the church or outside or both, um, which is also commonly the case. Um, and so really kind of two parts, I think I talked about this last week, and I think this matters in the way that we approach this study. Um, you know, two parts, kind of the surface level goal and intention is to the extent that you might be sympathetic to some of this fake news, um, hopefully we can, some of our time together can help to unravel uh, that thinking in, in yourself. But then secondly, uh, uh, the secondary goal is to really serve as, a, as an equipping time for you to maybe help others um, in these conversations, you know, so that, so that you in turn can help others kind of un, unravel and unwind um, some of these uh, really unfortunate ideas. Um, here's, here's a overall kind of headline passage from the Apostle Paul for this study or a study like this. Uh, and this is really quite striking when you think about it, the more you think about it, I think. Second Corinthians 10, Paul says, indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, uh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds, Okay, and then listen to this. He says, we destroy arguments and every proud obstacle uh, raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. In the context of a verse like this, you may have heard of the phrase spiritual warfare. And it's a fitting and it's appropriate and it's true. And yet it's also important to recognize that in the very same breath, in the very same flow of thought... Um, the Apostle Paul is bringing up what we might call not only spiritual warfare, but what we might r rightly call, I think, intellectual warfare. Paul sees himself as, um, as an arguer, and he wants to take on, he wants to destroy arguments, and he wants to take down ideas that are serving as obstacles, preventing people um, from not knowledge about God, but actually preventing people from really getting to know God. That's how we take the phrase, the knowledge of God. It's not just knowing God like I have the God encyclopedia memorized. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the knowledge of God, like the intimate, personal knowledge of God. So ideas that actually prevent us, people, um, from the intimate, personal knowledge of God, connection with God. So that, that's the idea. So, um, so kind of in that spirit, we are... Um, taking on some of the arguments and ideas that, him, that have set themselves up in our culture 
um, uh, that are actually preventing people from really coming to know, uh, truly know the heart of God. And this, the idea that we're talking about today happens to be an idea that was not only, that's not only true in our culture today, but was also true clear back um, in the culture that the Apostle Paul served in 2,000 years ago and half a world away. Today's fake news item is this. The New Testament is anti-female. It's fake news. Don't you believe it? It's fake news. Um, you can see, you can tell, you can feel that this is a continuation, a, a continuation of, thank you so much, Matt. This is a continuation of uh, where we left off last week. Last week, we, we uh, worked with the fake news that God is male. And if you weren't a part of that study or uh, haven't been familiar with that, I encourage you to go back and, and get that out of the podcast is available. Um, this week, uh, we're really working on a continuation uh, of that thought. When, and the way I've titled it is, the New Testament is anti-female. Um, I could... I could just as well have titled this study, um, The Apostle Paul is Anti-Female. Um, I could have laid the claim directly at his feet um, because most of the fake news item comes from the writings of the Apostle Paul. But I didn't want to title this study that way just out of sheer respect for the great apostle, right? So I kind of, you know, fuzzified a little bit in the New Testament. So what we're going to deal with is actually from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Um, and again, as we said last week, the same, same dynamic holds true. Um, this idea is, is unfortunate not only because, as I'm going to maintain, it's not true, but in addition to that, this idea has secondary cascading domino effect implications um, that are really unfortunate, detrimental uh, toward uh, women, have been uh, in the past and even are so today, arguably. Um, and so, and I've got some quotes that are on your outline. These were uh, the same kind of litany uh, from, from, well, more or less central figures from within Christianity throughout the ages, sort of echoing some of this really unfortunate, destructive, um, and I, again, I'm going to maintain altogether confused uh, perspective on Women and I thought I would skip them, skip over them, but I don't think I will. I think I'll go ahead and read them just because you need to know what we're dealing with when we're pushing back on this idea, and I also want you to know that I know what we're dealing with when we push back against this idea. I realize, I get it. This idea is in the atmosphere, both within the church and uh, I don't mean to say this in a one-to-one -one direct kind of way, but to the extent that the church has been influential on its host cultures around the world, then unfortunately, uh, much of the doctrine and ideology and ethos that spilled out from the church onto the surrounding culture has either created or reinforced um, the dynamic of subjugating women to some sort of second-class citizenship, uh, or worse, that's probably a general way to say it, uh, in some instances. So, you know, we realize what we're, what we're pushing up against, at least in certain, um, in certain instances. So here's, you know, here's some of them. This is Augustine. He's a hallmark hero of the faith, certainly a theological giant, very, very influential in the history of the church, fourth and fifth centuries. Um, even if you've never heard his name, you have been influenced by uh, this theologian and thinker and influencer 
within the church. Here's a quote from him. The woman, together with her own husband, is the image of God, so that that whole substance may be one image. But when she is referred separately to her quality of helpmeet, uh, which regards the woman herself alone, then she is not the image of God. This is brutal, everybody. So here's Augustine, very influential, uh, who's essentially saying that a woman in and of herself uh, is not created in the image of God. Only when linked, joined together with her husband, does she share in the image of Godness uh, of, of the male. But the, but the male by himself now, he is the image of God. I mean, this is just, this is really unfortunate stuff. Um, here's Martin Luther, um, the, um, you know, the, the, the protagonist of the uh, uh, Protestant Reformation. For as the sun is more glorious than the moon, though the moon is a most glorious body, so woman, though she was a most beautiful work of God, yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature. <laughs> I know, I know. Thank you for being uh, guffawed at that. A uh, little closer to home, here's one from uh, John Piper, if you're not familiar. He's a, a contemporary American Christian leader. God has made Christianity to have a masculine feel. He's ordained for the church a masculine ministry. Like, what in the world? And then here's a bit more terse remark recently from a man by the name of John MacArthur, if you're not familiar. He's a contemporary uh, American pastor. This is a comment that he spoke with reference to Christian teacher Beth Moore, uh, his words simply to Beth Moore, admittedly outside her presence, but to her nonetheless were, go home. Now, I realize that um, I'm speaking directly to a group of people who are, you're already convinced of what I'm saying, I, I presume, I'm presuming that, I hope I'm right. Um, but we all need to recognize that, um, that there are some folks who are still, as I've said as, from these examples, there are some folks who are still locked into this notion that the New Testament, really, I say anti-females, they wouldn't agree with that characterization, but they would certainly say that according to the New Testament, um, women, at least in the church, are subjugated or are to be subjugated to men. There are some people who still hold that ideology. Now, uh, let me just say, and I don't have the statistics in front of me. You can Google this. I'm going to speak in, in generalities. Um, on the one hand, you could say that most of uh, the Christian church has, um, has come around um, and has now approached a more egalitarian ethos. Uh, in fact, if you just look at a list of denominations measured based on uh, whether or not they ordain women as, a, as sort of an up or down, observable, yes or no kind of binary question, today there are very, actually very few Christian denominations who, who still do not ordain women. That's actually a short list. It's a very long list of Christian denominations uh, today who do ordain women into ministry. The short list of those who still have yet to, uh, to kind of, you know, wake up. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not ordain women. Eastern Orthodox Church does not ordain women. The sub Southern Baptist uh, denomination does not ordain women. It's a very short list. But by and large, 
Methodists do ordain women, Assemblies of God, on and on, you know, Lutheran, many uh, branches of Lutheran, Presbyterian, and so on, uh, do ordain women today. So if you just look at that list on paper, you can say, hey, well, you know, actually, maybe this conversation has um, passed us by. Maybe there's really no need to talk about this anymore because, by and large, most of Christianity has reached a more um, egalitarian sort of ethos, um, at least. And so what I would say is that's at least true on paper, right? Like, like according to the, the spelled out policies based on a denominational, you know, scale, I suppose. On paper, admittedly, there are far more Christian denominations today who do ordain women to ministry uh, as opposed to those who do not. The caveat, though, that I would say, and again, this is just feel and perception and, and anyone would be free to differ here. But, but I would say based on my sort of observed experience, ex experience and observation, that even when the policy on paper is, yes, we do ordain uh, women to ministry, it's still unfortunately, I would say, the reality that even in those denominational subcultures, the representation of women among ministry leadership is still lagging far, far behind. So there can be this disconnect between our policy on paper and our actual practice of day-to-day -day ministry and leadership within the church. Does that make sense? So on the one hand, you could say on the surface, this conversation, we may, you know, it, it may be that that ship has sailed and we've already figured this out and we're moving on. And yet I would say, hold on just a minute before we go too far too fast, let's recognize that still, even though on paper, we've got by far the majority of the Christian community ordaining women to ministry, still even with that, uh, there tends to be a culture and an ethos where um, women are still underrepresented uh, in ministry and in leadership in particular. And so, having said all that, let's take this on. The New Testament is anti-female. It's out there. The thinking is held. It has been for a long time. Uh, but is it true? Is it really true? Um, first, we're going to begin with actual evidence to the contrary within the New Testament itself. So we're going to take a little tour. We're going to do some bouncing just like we did last week. Um, and I think, ironically, the majority of this study may be spent on demonstrating the evidence to the contrary. And then we're going to look at uh, one of the sort of central New Testament fragments that's used to reinforce the idea of subjugating uh, women to a male-dominant uh, culture. First, evidence to the contrary. Let's just begin with the book of Acts. Acts 21. Uh, here's a reference. It says, The next day we left and came to Caesarea, and we went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the original evangelists of the early church. Uh, he was one of the seven, it says. And we stayed with him. And here's this quick mention. Philip had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Now, it's important to understand that in New Testament thinking, uh, what prophecy means. The gift of prophecy is, is a way of saying that the community, the surrounding faith community, recognized that these four young women, these daughters of Philip, had been given the spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit of prophecy. In this case, the word prophecy means to speak forth the heart and mind of God. It's not necessarily, it's not about predicting the future. It's not like they had the Nostradamus vibe. That's not what he's saying. The, that these four women 
had the gift of prophecy, meaning they had been gifted by the Holy Spirit to speak forth the heart and mind of God. What does that tell you? That's telling you that these four uh, women were involved in speaking, leading, teaching, uh, revealing to the church the heart and mind of God. This is an example in the earliest church of women in ministry leadership, four daughters of the evangelist Philip. Moving on, Romans 16. This is toward the tail end of the Apostle Paul's great letter to the church at Rome. This is from Romans chapter 16. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she's been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Notice here, would you, that the Apostle Paul here is making reference, specific reference to a deacon in the church named Phoebe, a woman who holds a formal leadership position in the church. And it's Phoebe who delivers Paul's letter, what we know of as the book of Romans. It's a letter um, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers at Rome. It's Phoebe who carried that letter to the church at Rome. And uh, you, you're probably already aware of this, but the letters of the Apostle Paul were originally received not by individuals reading them, but by an individual reading the letter in the gathered assembly to the gathered assembly. That's the way these documents were written. Like, like we have our own bound copy and you can sit in absolute solitude and silence and read these letters. That's not the way these letters were originally delivered to the Jesus, the Jesus communities. They were originally read aloud in the assembly to the assembly as a gathered group together. So get the picture. Here's, here's the Phoebe who shows up with the scroll rolled up under her arm. She gathers the church at Rome together in a shared space and she begins to read what we know of as Romans chapter 1 verse 1. And she reads the letter to the assembly. So the first person to preach Romans was a lady named Phoebe, who's a deacon in the church. Come on, somebody. This is phenomenal. In that same chapter, um, uh, chapter 16, verse 7, there's other mentions that we could pause and, and think on, but I'm just pulling out a couple. Verse 7, um, he says, oh, and by the way, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Junia, prominent among the apostles. Listen, everybody, and I know, you know, this is, this is debated, but I'm telling you, I'm comfortable that what Paul is making mention of here, everybody in the community in and around Rome knew, Junia was an apostle. She's a female apostle in the early church, and that's what Paul is calling her. She is, she is instrumental in the um, what apostle means is, is in the um, uh, founding of these little outposts of the new community of the spirit that we call churches. And that's what Junia did in the earliest uh, decades of the church. And here he's mentioning Andronicus and Junia among the apostles. Um, just quickly here through some others. 
1 Corinthians 11, we won't go through the thing because it's kind of a convoluted um, argument, but I'm just going to say if you go and read through 1 Corinthians 11, just note there that in the context of that argument, the Apostle Paul is presuming that there will be women who will both pray and prophesy in the gathered assembly of the early church. It's clear and obvious that Paul is assuming, recognizing. It's shared knowledge between Paul as the author of the letter and the Corinthian believers as the recipients of the letter. Shared knowledge that there will be women who will pray in the gathered assembly, pray aloud that is, in the gathered assembly, and who will prophesy in the gathered assembly, speaking forth the heart and mind of God. Everybody, this is all over. This is all throughout the New Testament. The reality is, the fact of the matter is, when you put... The, when you put the whole of the New Testament witness together, what you get is, is a witness to the contrary of the fake news that we're talking about today. The fake news is that the New Testament is anti-women. The reality is that the New Testament is actually um, subversive and overturning of the, surround, the norm of the surrounding culture, which was to subjugate women to secondary class. The New Testament is this counterculture. The, the new community of the Spirit is this counterculture that's pushing against that oppressive social norm and striving toward uh, a reality where everyone is one, where the ultimate goal for Paul, the impact of the gospel, is ultimately in the, the, the dissolving of social categories and this new reality uh, that we, I think, are best, could best call mutual submission, where everyone is in submission to one another, universally so. Here's a, a, a glaring example uh, of that, Galatians chapter 3. There is no longer, he says, Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What is that? There's no longer, this is, this is the dissolving, the bursting, the ignoring of social categories. And this is replacing all of that categorization and stratifying, replacing all of that with this new normal of the spirit, which is what he calls here oneness, which I'm saying as a practical matter um, I would offer, the, the, as a practical way of understanding what he means by oneness, is what we would call mutual submission. Everyone in submission to, to one another. You go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. We'll do it your way. No, we'll do it your way. That's mutual submission. Everyone submitted to one another. Here is a, an overt um, uh, spelling out of that. I would, say, I would say that the ultimate goal of, of all of Paul's um, teaching, which is challenging the, the social norm of, you know, primary and secondary categorization of people. The ultimate goal of, it, of all of it is this new reality of the spirit of mutual submission. And here's an, an overt statement of that. Ephesians 5 verse 21, he says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another. Submit to one another. Mutual Submission. This is the end game, the goal of all of Paul's very countercultural instruction to the church. One more, uh, and this one I think is in many ways uh, most interesting because there is a story I think that's familiar to a lot of us. From this is now we're going back um, to the life of Jesus, and there's a story 
that may be familiar, but maybe a detail of that story that might go uh, underappreciated, right? You remember the story of when Jesus is in the house and Jesus is teaching and uh, there's one present named Mary and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus while he's teaching and one named Martha who's doing all the work to get everything, you know, get everything set up or so on for the, for the meal or whatever is to come. And Martha complains, right? So here, let's just read the story. Luke 10. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, asked, that's a nice way to say it. She came to him and complained, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. <laughs> but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. And Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. It's a beautiful, beautiful response. Um, so let's just cut to it. What may be underappreciated about this story is that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus as a learner, as a disciple. It's difficult for us here 2,000 years later and a half a world away to appreciate how revolutionary this is because rabbis didn't have female disciples 2,000 years ago in the region of Palestine. That's, that's not the culture. Women were not learners. They weren't allowed to learn from the rabbis, uh, if at all. Certainly, certainly not from the rabbis, even, even if at all. And so the underappreciated detail of this story is that here in the life and ministry, in the program of Jesus, we have this person named Mary who has been, uh, you know, we have to choose our words carefully here, but I, she, she's been sort of like counterculturally um, brought in to the place of disciple, to the place of learner. And again, we're extrapolating here a little bit, but, but again, in Hebrew culture, the students of a rabbi, um, being a student of a rabbi was not an end in itself. Being a student of a rabbi was a transition to being a teacher himself. That's the purpose of a rabbi's tutelage. Rabbis create rabbis. That's what they do. Rabbis don't create perpetual students. Rabbis produce teachers. And so, everybody, here's the deal. The reality is, if you take the pattern, what we're seeing here in this moment, that's why I'm saying it's an underappreciated detail of the story, is that in the paradigm of Jesus, he has at least one, and I'm going to say, I like to think there's probably more than one, a female disciple who is uh, presumably on her way to becoming a disciple maker herself. That's the purpose of being a student of a rabbi. And so, so again, whatever it is you see in Paul, and there's a lot that you see in Paul that's countercultural, pushing back uh, against this oppressive social norm, relegating uh, women to secondary status, whatever you see in the writings of the Apostle Paul, he got it from Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the paradigm and the pattern. And so, so for Paul, A, he gets the example, uh, he receives the example from the practice ministry of Christ himself. But in addition to that, for Paul, the whole, um, I guess I want to say, 
the integrity of the gospel, the real life fleshed out integrity of the gospel is hinged upon this notion of mutual submission, that, that the brutality of segregating and stratifying culture is dissolved by the redemptive work of God in Christ. And for Paul, the, the very integrity of the gospel hinges upon that reality being the expressed, lived experience of the community of the Spirit. No more categories. No more strata. Mutual submission. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Say it however you want, but that's the whole deal. No more Jews and Gentiles. No more slave and free. No more male and female. You're all one in Christ. This is from start to finish, not only in the writings of the Apostle Paul, but even beyond that. And there's so many examples of this that we've left out from our quick um, scan of the New Testament. I also want to say, though, before we move in uh, to a more specific look, uh, uh, it is extraordinarily significant that in the Easter stories, the first people to announce that Jesus was not in the tomb, but he was alive. The first people to make that announcement were women. Yeah, it was women. They were the first people to announce that Jesus were, were alive, was alive. So, so quite literally, the first apostles were female, were women. That's the story. That's the Easter story. And you can see through uh, the New Testament documents about the early church, the book of Acts, and even through the writings of the Apostle Paul, that, that that beginning with women being key and instrumental in apostleship, in the, uh, uh, the declaring of the gospel, uh, that began on Easter and continues throughout the early church. So, overwhelmingly, the evidence of the New Testament is to the contrary of today's fake News And so the question then becomes, well, then why? Why then is the fake news out there? Where does that idea come from? And I just want to say that the idea comes from a handful of passages of Scripture that can be read in a misogynistic way. Um, they don't have to be read that way. Uh, they can be read that way. And that's what I hope to show you as an example in our remaining time this morning, and we're not going to look at all of the clobber passages, uh, but we're going to look at one of the clobber passages, and this, this may be, I'm going to say, this is chief among the clobber passages. When you get with a, um, a, a Christian who shares this kind of male-dominated um, perspective on what the church is, this would probably be um, most likely to be the 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 scripture fragment um, that the person bigoted against women would cite from first timothy chapter 2 verse 8 let's just let's just read it in the raw to start i desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or argument also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently uh, in suitable clothing. This is from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. Uh, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn 
in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith, love, and holiness with modesty. Whoa. I mean, sheesh. What is going on here? That is just brutal, isn't it? I think especially, and I hope especially, in the flow of kind of our time together so far, when you juxtapose what we just read against everything that we had just talked about, doesn't that feel foreign? It's like, where did that come from? Like after we've, we, we've gone through, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ, mutual submission, and you soak in all of that for a while, and then you read this, wow, it's like, like shock, at least I hope it is shock, because it raises some important questions like, okay, so has Paul suddenly reversed himself? Right, like that was is he now just okay, all that stuff about mutual submission and all that stuff about no more male and female. I was just kidding on all that, because where the rubber meets the road, you know, this is by the way, did I mention if if, if you're not familiar, the what we the letter first and second Timothy, they're written by the apostle Paul to a young pastoral leader named Timothy. Uh, and so Timothy, I was just kidding about all that other stuff. Now I'm telling you how I really feel. You know, I don't permit a woman to teach a man she must be in full submission and be silent. Has Paul reversed himself? Are we, are we supposed to suddenly forget about all of that countercultural pushback that Paul has been fostering within the communities of the Spirit, pushing back against the surrounding cultural norms of subjugating women? Are we supposed to forget about all that? Are we supposed to say, oh, well, now all of a sudden the church is just a repeat of the surrounding culture, and after all, within the church, we're just like the surrounding culture, and women are second class, just, you know, just like we've inherited from our surrounding culture. Did we forget all about all that egalitarian uh, teaching with Paul working so hard to craft um, these communities of the spirit characterized by mutual submission? Did all that just go out the window? What is going on? Do you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is to read that passage in the, in the way that it comes to us, at least on the surface, as if Paul is now suddenly saying, in the end, I require unilateral submission on the part of women submitting to me. To read that passage in that way accounts to a reversal on the part of the Apostle Paul against this large body of evidence found elsewhere in his writings, egalitarian notions, mutual submission, and so on. So what are we to do? How do we handle this? How do we, more specifically, how do we read this passage? And I want to say uh, to you that there are actually several routes that we can take uh, to arrive at a sane reading of this passage. In other words, the Apostle Paul has not actually lost his mind and reversed himself. There are actually several ways that this passage can be read uh, in, in, in ways that are actually not inconsistent with what he has taught elsewhere. And I want to give you, I'm going to give you a total of three, and I'm hopefully spend most of our time on the third one because I think it's the most elegant. Um, but the first is, is this, and this is done by um, 
several English translations of the Bible, and that is uh, by the by the simple stroke of translating the Greek words that are that I've just read, translated woman and man, instead translate those words as uh, wife and husband, and just by that simple trans translation. Uh, alternative reading, what you have here is the Apostle Paul making a statement about marriage within a marriage, not making a statement about the broad faith community. Um, and that gets us a long way toward a reading that is much more consistent with what the Apostle Paul has sailed, has sailed elsewhere. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So um, Common English Bible does that, New Jerusalem Bible does that, that being has husband and wife in this passage as opposed to men and women. Uh, several English translations of the Bible do that. And that's a very helpful um, route to a place that's far more uh, sane. Okay, here's a second one. And on your outline, um, I've got it characterized like this, that actually what Paul is saying here is that mutual submission is mutual. <laughs> and that sounds silly, but let me just give you an example. This is what Saint Eugene Peterson does in his message, New Testament. Um, he says this for 2 Corinthians 2. That's kind of the center of the storm here in this passage. He says this um, I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. So, in other words, if when you read it that way, then what Paul is saying is again, consistent with what he said elsewhere, and he's saying that, hey, I don't, I don't want women domineering over men, just as I don't want men domineering over women, right? So in other words, by that reading, and that's really what Peterson is doing here, is what Paul is saying here is consistent with what Paul says elsewhere, I want mutual submission. That's what the ethos of the church is to be. So those are two um, kind of you know, accessible routes, readings to, to get us to a place where, in fact, the Apostle Paul has not lost his mind, uh, and he's saying here what is consistent with what he says elsewhere. Here's a third one, though, and this is where I'm going to spend um, the last bit of our time, and I've given this uh, the following summary. The third reading is to read this passage as Paul offering Timothy, and by extension, we're going to talk about this, but by extension, the new community that Timothy is fostering in the city of Ephesus, that what Paul is giving here is actually the perfect instruction for the new community in a unique setting. That is the setting of Ephesus. And we arrive at this by taking, and it's really two parts. One is, as I've already indicated, the, the Greek grammar. And any, anyone who speaks more than one language, you know that translation is an art and not a science, right? And so all of these um, alternative readings, these routes to sanity, do involve working with the Greek grammar. And well-intended, sensitive scholars don't agree, as I've already said. Some say that the Greek word should be translated uh, man and woman. Others say the Greek word should be translated male and female. These people are, are well-intended, good, sincere, honest thoughtful, spirit-sensitive people, but they don't agree. So part of it is grammar. But then the other part, and this is what I want to say is essential, um, is taking into account the ancient historical context. And in this case, 
This is a letter written from an older Apostle Paul to a young protege, ministry protege, Timothy, who has been charged with either starting from scratch or at least fostering uh, a new church community that's just, just getting going. So Timothy is on the founding, you know, kind of on the early stages of getting a church going in the city of Ephesus. Now, what do we know about ancient Ephesus? Well, um, one of the things we know about ancient Ephesus that is particularly important here um, is that the main religion in the ancient city of Ephesus was the worship of Artemis. Um, she was called Artemis by the Greeks. She was called Diana by the Romans. And we know this from archaeology because the, the largest, the single largest temple in the ancient city of Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. Now, obviously, you can tell from her name that Artemis was a female deity who was looked to by the folks. Um, she was looked to as a patron for helping women in various ways, especially for helping women through the various transitions in the lives of women. Um, for example, um, folks would look to Artemis for help with a successful transition from, from my little girl being a little girl transitioning to being a young woman. So we would look to Artemis to help um, our child, my daughter, make that transition from being a girl to being a young woman, make that transition successfully. We would look to Artemis for help in that transition. Or the transition from, from a, when a female transitions from being a young woman uh, to being a wife. There's a transition in the life of a female. So we would look to Artemis uh, in preparation for marriage, right? So, so that we, would, we would, might do a liturgy in the temple of Artemis, might do some sort of religious observance in the temple of Artemis for help with that transition. Or, and I think significantly for our project today, the transition in the life of a woman from woman to mother. This is an enormous transition in the life of a woman. There's, and there's historical evidence that, that it was very common for people to look to Artemis for help and aid in success uh, in this very critical and even in many ways scary transition from, from being uh, from woman to motherhood, that transition specifically being, being the birth of a child. So, so folks would look to Artemis to seek well-being and success throughout all of these transitions in the lives of women. One archaeologist even describes Artemis as the goddess of healthy deliveries um, because it was so common with, when there was an upcoming childbirth, it was a major occasion for folks to carry out um, observances in the temple of Artemis around an upcoming childbirth. Now, we need to know that all of the priests in the cult of Artemis were female. The entire ministry staff, everyone who conducted ordinances in the temple of Ar Artemis, they were all female. And so presumably if you were a male who wanted to participate in an observance within the temple of Artemis because there's a female in your life that you care about and you're seeking 
well-being for her. Um, you're, you can participate, but you better know that there were plenty of authoritative priestesses who were in charge and more than able to keep you in line. If you want to be in here in this temple among us, you can be, but you're going to follow the instructions of the priestess, priestesses, and they are going to keep you in line while you're in here. Now, if you had been a citizen of ancient Ephesus, all of that would be common knowledge to you. In our day-to-day -day life, we don't go around thinking about Artemis very much, but if you were Timothy or if you were uh, folks who were working with Timothy or with whom Timothy was working to found this new community of the Spirit, all of that would be absolute common knowledge to you. Now, if you were the Apostle Paul seeking to establish um, an outpost of this alternative society of the Spirit in the ancient city of Ephesus, think about how knowledge of this reality of the unique setting of the city of Ephesus, think about how that might influence how you coach Timothy, right? You, you're known, if you're the Apostle Paul, you are known for your countercultural ideals of mutual submission, subverting or ignoring conventional social norms of categories and hierarchies and all of that. And you, as the Apostle Paul, you have no intention of backtracking on all of your ideals just because you're now working in the city of Ephesus, right? No, you're still going to push for that egalitarian ethic um, of mutual submission. So what do you do? How do you handle the uniqueness of this particular city with its prominent female-dominant religious subculture? What do you say? What do you say to those who might be concerned, actually, that your insistence upon equality might lead to a carryover of the Artemis ethic within the church, right? What do you say to those who might have that concern? Well, these are all very good and important questions, and all these, these come from taking seriously the historical context for this ancient document. Um, and the scholar, great New Testament scholar, biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, has given us a thoughtful and learned reading of this passage. And I think that his reading of this passage um, reads exactly like something Paul would say, given everything we know about the Apostle Paul and his heart for the church, everything we know about his churches, and everything we know about the uniqueness of the situation in the city of Ephesus. Listen to how N.T. Wright suggests that we translate the passage. Speaking of women, he says, they must study undisturbed in full submission to God. I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them. Rather, they should be left undisturbed. Adam was created first, you see, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into trespass. She will, however, be kept safe through the process of childbirth if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with prudence. Let's break this down. He says, first of all, that women should study undisturbed. 
And again, everybody, this is so countercultural. This is Paul repeating the example as given uh, by Jesus with Mary as we just read. So here's Paul saying, no, listen, 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 listen. Women are no longer to be relegated outside of the circle of study. No, women need to be able to study, and they should do so undisturbed, in full submission to God, just like everybody else who studies, be in full submission to God. He says, I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them, but rather they should be left undisturbed here. In other words, what Paul is saying, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that the church is going to be a carbon copy of the Artemis temple. We're not going to swing the temp- we're not going to we're not going to swing the the pendulum to the other pole. Paul is not saying that um, women should teach men, nor is he saying that men should teach women. That's not the way the apostle Paul thinks. The apostle Paul doesn't think along the lines of gender when it comes to function of ministry in the church. How does the Apostle Paul think when it comes to the function of ministry in church? He thinks along the lines of gifting, spiritual gifting. That's how Paul says the church functions, not by gender, but by spiritual gift. And so, no, he's not saying that women should teach men, nor is he saying that men should teach women. It doesn't work based on gender. It works on gifting. Those who are gifted to teach should teach, regardless of their biology. Those who are gifted to lead should lead, regardless of their biology. Those who are gifted to prophesy should prophesy, regardless of their biology. So Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't lead, guide, construct the church based on gender lines uh, of either direction. Paul doesn't assign ministry based on gender, but on Holy Spirit giftedness always. And so, he says that uh, women should be allowed, first of all, allowed to study, and they should study undisturbed. In other words, don't bother them, don't pester them, and above all, don't try to press them into typical social roles that you've inherited from your surrounding culture. See, so he's doing something that's completely counterculture. He's saying, no, look, we bring these people in, uh, and just imagine someone who happens to be female, but is coming fresh out of culture, who has no idea of the background of the story of Christianity. He's saying, no, when these people come, they're not second class, bring them right up to the table to study as a matter of first order, to study and to learn in full submission to God, just like everybody else, and don't mess with them. Don't expect them to conform to some norm that you've inherited from outside that you got in your head somewhere and she's female and so she's got to do X, Y, and Z. No, 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 no. Don't, just don't mess with her. Let her study. Let her learn. Let her grow just like you or anyone, anyone else. Everybody tracking with this? Okay. All right. Um, now, here's this next statement. Adam was created first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into trespass. Now, this is a very curious statement at first. Like, like, where does this even come from? Like, how does this comment even fit within the current conversation? Um, well, you know, think about it, and we're not going to flip there. I'll just, I'll just kind of narrate it, and you can go back and read it later. Um, but he's making a reference to Genesis chapter 2, right? So the sequence in Genesis 2, first, God creates Adam and forms him out of the dust. Next, God commands Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Next, God creates Eve. 
What's the point? Eve was not present to receive the instruction from God. Adam was, right? And so what happens? What does Paul say? Adam was not deceived. How, how it, why is it that Paul would say Adam was not deceived? Adam knew exactly what he was doing because he heard the command from God. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he disobeyed God anyway. When she handed him the fruit, he knew exactly what it was and exactly that it had been directly prohibited by God, and he ate it anyway. Adam ate not in deception but in full knowledge of what was going on, and he disobeyed God anyway. Eve, however, was deceived. Why was she deceived? Because she wasn't present to receive the instruction directly from God. She only received it of secondary order from Adam, who was apparently a pathetic teacher. Because Adam's instruction of Eve failed her in the moment of crisis. And so, yes, Eve was deceived, but not because of her gender. She was received because she received the teaching, the instruction of God of a second order. So what Paul is saying here, he's, he's saying, he's using the story of Genesis 2 to re-say what he's been saying. No, listen, when these women come into your community, they are first-class students, just like everybody else. They are to receive the instruction directly from the Lord, not as secondary, because what we know from Genesis 2 is that second-order instruction fails us in the time of trial. So Paul's saying, we're not doing that anymore. There are no second-class citizens. We've learned that as early as Genesis chapter 2. It's not going to happen anymore, not in the community of the Spirit. Here, we are all one. We are all the same, and we're all going to receive the teaching directly from the Lord. Huh? Come on. See? We could have we we saved the world all kinds of trouble, everybody. All right. So, um, so here... Paul is saying we're going to learn the lesson from Genesis to everyone's going to see, receive instruction. So now, so now we get to the last bit, which again sounds very confusing uh, at, first, at first reading. He says, she will, however, um, well, I got to go back because N.T. Wright does a great job unpacking it for us. But, but um, the, uh, the more um, curious language is that she will be saved through childbirth, right? As if, as if like the word saved means she'll go to heaven when she dies uh, because, because of the good deed of childbirth, right? Like, like and so often that gets read like Paul is told, like he's no longer the champion of justification by faith anymore. Now he's the champion of justification by childbirth, right? It's like, how crazy is that? But here, this is, this, now it makes total sense, right? Because the context is the temple of Artemis. And where do people go to look for, look for safety, uh, through childbirth, typically in the culture of Ephesus, they go to Artemis. But what's Paul saying? No, 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 no. Here, look, she will be kept safe through the process of childbirth. Just continue in faith, love, and holiness with prudence. We're no longer looking to Artemis for healthy deliveries. Now we're trusting in God and in God alone, right? See what I'm saying? So Paul is interacting all the way through this passage. He's interacting with the common ethic and ethos of the, the uniquenesses of the city of Ephesus. Paul says, no longer. From here on out, we're trusting in God and in God alone. He will keep you safe through childbirth. Just look to him. Just stay steady in faith, love, and devotion to God, and everything is going to be all right. Is everybody tracking? So you put all that together, and what you have here. Um, uh, I think beautifully, gloriously, 
in this passage that has been misread, misused, and abused and turned into a clobber passage against women. What you have, once again, to the contrary, is Paul teaching what he always teaches, right? Which is, with the, which is this radically beautiful countercultural ethic of equality, mutual submission, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and everyone is a first order disciple of Christ. Are we tracking? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that fun? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you're here for this live stream? I hope so. I'm glad that you guys are here. All right, fantastic. Well, um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to wrap it up. I want to say this, though, as we're, as we're done. You guys, band, y'all can come on up. Um, you know, last, last week, I tried to... I tried to kind of pull that together with some what ifs and some so what and all that. And I thought about that same idea for this week. And I really don't know that that can be done. <laughs> um, because, again, maybe not for you, but for so many people, these ideas are so deeply ingrained, you know. And I think for some people, at least, it just it might take a while. Um, it might take a while to unravel because, you know, life can be really confusing. I mean, it's like, you know, you would think on the surface, you would think, well, you know, there's, there's one ideology out there that, you know, presses toward equality and, and all that. And particularly here we're talking about for women. And then there's another thought out there that's, you know, believes it's a sincere, out of sincere duty and devotion to God, we must subjugate women to second class. You would think that anybody who's a fan of the subjugating ethic would have to be male. <laughs> um, and you would think that any female would celebrate the realization that actually the heart of God in the New Testament itself is is in favor of equality for women. Uh, but it's not so. Um, unfortunately, I know for, for many people. In fact, today, this, this convoluted, upside-down religious ethic has gone on for so long that even for some women, some women feel like it's their spiritual duty to function in a secondary way. And... It's not because, you know, it's not because, it's not because you're insecure, it's not because you have a poor self-image, it's because you sincerely think that's your religious obligation. Um, and so for you, it can take a while. I get that. Um, and for what it's worth, you know, I want to say I'm prepared to be patient with that. I mean in terms of time, not in terms of accommodating it, but, but I'll give you time if you need that. Um. I've given, I've given this reading this morning uh, not out of capitulation to culture, but because I believe with all my heart that this is, this is the, the most responsible way to handle the sacred text. Um, and so I'm not going to cooperate long-term with a sense of, being subjugated because of your biology, but I will be patient with you. 
because I know it can take some time. Uh, and then, you know, I, I hate to say, but I think I got to say that if you are male and you have carried, even out of sincere religious devotion, you've carried this sense that because someone else is female, they should be subjugated to you. Uh, I realize that in the best cases, that is sincerely held. But I want you to know that you've been sincerely wrong. And uh, I'm going to call you to repent of that. Get right with God. And then carry forward in the mutual submission called for by the new community of the Spirit. All right.